0: We're going to be looking at verses six through eight this morning. First Timothy six, beginning verse six. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and clothing, or if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Mm. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. There's a problem that can creep into churches. It can be a plague among us that we don't detect, but can easily pick up, even in churches where the Bible is taught faithfully it's a sneaky problem. What is it? I would say the problem is spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. It's an attitude that says, I don't care, or "Ah, that's not that important, or a, a laziness and a lack of intentionally seeking the things of God. And any of us can drift into this disposition and we may not be so bold to say, to say out loud that we don't care, but our lifestyles betray us and speak more clearly about what the affections of our heart really are. We, we might say we believe the Bible, we read the Bible, we study the Bible, we teach the Bible, but then our personal lives look like we are far away from the Bible because we are. Why? Lazy in applying what it says. We're all about the Bible and its formality. But when it comes to personal application, eh, not so much. Give me depth of knowledge, but application, eh, that's just spiritual apathy, a laziness. It is hard work to apply the Bible. It really is. It takes intentional thought. And it's done great as we think through it in a context of with one another. Hence a shameless plug for our HDGs starting up. A time to be together to think through what was preached on a Sunday morning and then let's work through how that applies in our lives. We ought not be lazy. Ought not be lazy in that. But we might have that apathetic attitude. We might have an attitude where we assume, in fact, God is a loving God and he is just pleased to have me. You're welcome, God. And we begin to live by the attitude or that mentality that says, "Eh, I'll just do what's good enough. It's good enough. There is a real temptation for us in the church. Why is that? Because we begin to take for granted what we have. You might remember months ago, Pastor Kempis's sermon on familiarity breeds contempt. Well, familiarity does breed contempt. It breeds a lack of valuing our prize we have. We get so used to being exposed to the Bible, to taking, taking for granted corporate worship, taking for granted the life of the church, prayer. We take for granted that we have it, that it begins to fall on our priority list and we lose the zeal for it we may once have had. Now we know this. We, we see this in our lives at time in other ways. There's something we really want. We're consumed by thinking about it until we get it. We get it. It's the most wonderful, life-changing thing for the whopping amount of time of a week, and then something else comes along, and that other thing is set aside as not so uh, life-changing. We become distracted and entertained by the fallen world. And those treasures of the fallen world hmm. Causes us to drift. In fact, this apathy can be stirred by worldliness. What is worldliness? Well, John MacArthur defines as worldliness is any preoccupation with or interest in the temporal system of life that places anything perishable before that which is eternal. Anything perishable before that which is eternal. More, I'm more excited about the toys of life, the comforts of life, The opinions of this fallen world, those things excite me more. Those things consume my time more. And boy, the devil loves to use these distractions, to use this apathy to pull us away from the main things, to create a discontentment with our Christianity. Not a denial, but hey, if he can get a discontentment in it, and we become lazy, well, he's won half the battle. And this can fuel this mentality, this can discontentment can fuel an overly laid-back mentality towards pursuing eternal things. But, beloved, the Bible calls us to a much higher standard than that. It calls us to live lives of love for the Lord and obedience to Him. It calls for us to press on in the race towards Christian maturity. It points us to prioritize the things of God and the people of God. But where are you at? Where are you at? Where am I at? Are we apathetic, uncaring and lazy in the things of the Lord? Hmm. Well, First Timothy six here goes after this idea of godliness and a key to godliness. In fact, several parts in First Timothy address this issue of godliness. And as we look at 1 Timothy 6 this morning, we see that satisfaction in Christ brings true godliness. Satisfaction in Christ brings true godliness. We need to live with the mindset that Christ is enough. Enough for what? Enough for anything. Everything. For life. He's enough. We'll begin looking at the first part of verse 6. If you have your bulletin on the notes there. You see a first blank. We see in verse 6, first part of verse 6, the blessing of godliness, the blessing of godliness, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. Now we're we're parachuting to the end of this book, so let's get a little context. 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul near the end of his life concerning matters of the church and the true gospel, and he talks about this true gospel as it impacts your life, as it hits your life, it should demonstrate itself in a life of godliness. And he's writing this to Timothy, who was to lead the church well and be an example of this godliness. And in his discussions about how the church functions and how we relate to one another, Paul shifts to address Timothy as a a leader, He calls for Timothy here to lead, to teach, to exhort the church, to hear the Scriptures, to believe the Scriptures, to obey the Scriptures, and to hear, to believe and obey the true doctrine that the Scriptures teach. What is this true doctrine? Well, it's that which aligns with godliness. That's what the Bible straightforwardly teaches. But he warns us here as he shifts into chapter 6, he warns about those who would have strayed from this true doctrine, strayed from the truth, and they twist Christianity, they twist the scriptures to gain treasures in this life. And you can spot these deceivers, as verses four and five would go on to show, you can spot them by the wicked works of their flesh, by the wicked works of the flesh, the fruit that is on display. See, the false teachers and the deceivers in the church were after earthly treasures and fame. They wanted to use Christianity to store up earthly treasures, whether that be money, possessions, fame, or even control. Control. That was the issue with Diotrephes in 3 John. He loved to be first among them and didn't accept what the leadership of the church said but these blessings of, the blessings that the false teachers were after are just pseudo-blessings, false blessings, empty blessings, just the here and now gains. It's not lasting. It's not eternal. And In fact, it comes at a cost of their own souls. It comes at the risk of leading others astray. And before we think, oh, that just happened back then in Paul's time, this danger still exists even to this day. Most blatantly, we see it in the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and you will get all that you desire, all the comforts of this world, money, health. Oh, if you don't have them, then there must be something wrong with your faith. Just lies, deception, twisting the truth, However, we play that game too if we're not careful. We Christianize the prosperity gospel. How? We get this mentality oh, Lord, I spent 72 hours yesterday in my devotional time and prayed for 27 hours yesterday morning. (laughs) And so I expect the rest of my week is going to be easy, right? I did these things. I read the Bible. You're welcome, God. Now, your turn. Give me the easy week. And for anyone who has been walking with the Lord for a while knows it don't work that way. In fact, watch out, the opposite might be coming. We need discipline. But that worldliness, that discontentment, that apathy, that craving for ease, for worldly things, it is a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous sin. Let's just call it what it is. Let's not dress it up in anything else. Let's just say what it is. It's sin. That we love, we value, we prioritize and pursue the fallen things of this fallen world above God. That's the danger of worldliness, and at its core, it's just covetousness, a dissatisfaction for what God has said, what God has done, and it can easily creep in. We develop this I gotta have it mentality I gotta have it, or I'm not happy, even in the church. Do the ministry the way I think it should be done. If you don't, I'm going to let you know that I am not pleased by that. It's just a desire for control. We put a Christian spin on worldly thinking, worldly philosophy, ungodly religious practices of other thinkings, other religions, but we Christianize them and think it's okay. We use our time to be consumed with entertainment but hardly put any effort into knowing God, knowing his word, prioritizing spiritual gatherings or even evangelism. We will happily play games and be entertained by those on the track to hell but don't care for a second what it is that they are promoting and whether it's Christ honoring or not. That covetousness produces worldliness which produces spiritual apathy and discontentment lusting after the world's stuff and fame is not true godliness that's what he had just warned about right before this in before verse 6 it's not the right view of godliness it's not the right view of gain in life our goal if you are in christ is not to have your best life now Your goal, my goal is to have a Christ-honoring, godly life now while we wait for our best life to come in eternity. But if that's going to happen, if we're going to have that mindset, if we're going to have that pursuit, that means we first must be reconciled to God. We first must be made right to God through the work of Jesus Christ who came and died for that worldliness, that sin, who died for our transgressions against him. The infinite payment of the blood of the infinite one to satisfy the infinite wrath of the infinitely holy God. Why? Because that was part of his plan that flowed out of his love and his desire to glorify his name. That Jesus would die on the cross for our sins so that if we repent and trust in him, we will be forgiven, redeemed reconciled, made at peace with God. Be given the hope of eternal life and be given something far greater to pursue than the empty vanities of the world. The empty vanities of the world, which if, for those of you are at camp, we call them the big hollow chocolate bunnies. You guys remember the chocolate bunnies on Easter? They look good, they're big, you take a bite in them and it's empty on the inside, there's nothing. Majorly disappointing. That's what the treasures of this world are. They look good. And they might initially feel good, but it's just hollow. There's no substance there. They're fleeting. Paul tells Timothy that true godliness is not for the gain of earthly treasure and fame. Instead, true godliness seeks the greatest treasure, which is the Lord himself. True godliness clings to the truth of God's word, and it lives content with what God has provided. With what God has provided. In fact, it's easily settled. Ooh, this, is, this is a challenging one for us. It is easily settled with God's daily provision and doesn't love anything or anyone in an idolatrous way. The I gotta have it way, or I can't be happy. Are we there? Easily settled with what God gives daily provision and the main thing that I know him and I'm pursuing him, I'm settled with that. So I don't need to idolize anything else. Now, admittedly, I am throwing out this term godliness left and right. And some of you might think you understand what it means. Some of you might like, I have no clue what that word means. I know it's something spiritual. Well, let me define it for you. The, verse six here, but godliness... Godliness means an awesome respect accorded to God, an awesome respect accorded to God, a a devoutness, a piety. When we think more fully as the Scriptures teach about godliness, you could say godliness is that inward reverence for God that overflows into an outward devotion for God. An inward reverence for God that overflows into an outward devotion. It begins with that right relationship with God through the gospel. From that right relationship flows a right devotion, which then flows into a right pursuit, a right conduct that pleases God. That's our desire. Hey, I'm, I'm reconciled to God through what Jesus did, and, so, and I love him, and I cherish him, and I'm going to pursue living for him, and then outwardly this is how it's going to look. I'm going to busy, get busy living in a way that pleases him. That's my aim now, in everything. If I'm pursuing the godly life, it's in everything I want to please him. Just like Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where he says, therefore, which there's a therefore, we ask, what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is therefore because he's talking about whether we're here or if we're in Christ, we're in heaven, either place, home or away. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. We make it our aim to please him. What's my responsibility in living a god life? To please God. Well, what about when this other person doesn't do that? Doesn't matter. First and foremost, your priority is to please God. Our desire above everything in our life is to please him, to glorify him, not to just get something from him, but to aim to please him, to live in a way that honors him no matter what comes because we are delighted, we're just delighted to be reconciled to him. And we recognize that he is the one rightfully deserving our worship, our devotion, a life of spiritual worship. One theologian would say about this verse, quote, or that we ought to desire to glorify God more than we want to breathe. We ought to desire to glorify God more than we want to breathe. Boy, isn't that saying something? I don't know about you, but I want to breathe. It's kind of important. In fact, our life is dependent upon it. And, but, but even more then our life being dependent on breathing, our life is eternally dependent upon glorifying God. That'll make a big decision about where you're going to spend eternity. Are you going to humbly submit to him, repent and trust in him, seek to glorify him? Or are you about about glorifying yourself and then you will find yourself in the lake of fire one day because you refuse to submit to Christ? Well we ought to desire to glorify God more than we want to breathe, or you could just take out breathe and put fill in the blank. We desire to glorify God more than I want fill in the blank. More than I want this new toy. More than I want people to hear my opinion and listen to it and do what I say. More than I want control, more than I want popularity, more than I want money, more than I want an easy life. That one's hard. We like to be comfortable. But a godly life, godliness has this at its core. I want to please him above everything. Now it's interesting, turn back to 1 Timothy 4, 7. Godliness is utterly important. Utterly important if you're a believer. Paul doesn't just begin chapter 6 mentioning godliness. Go all the way back to chapter 4, verse 7. Look at this but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, which is, what in the world is that? Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, as some translations say, old wives' tales, conspiracy theories, all that stuff is just a waste of time. Have nothing to do with it, bickering, rumors spreading in the church. Have nothing to do with it. You are to be fixed, set upon one direction. What is that? Well, I'm glad he answers that for us. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Train yourself for godliness. It's a command. A command. What do I do this morning? Train, discipline yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself, train yourself for a life that has an inward reverence for God and an outward devotion. This word for train or discipline is the word gumnadzo, which is where we get our English word for gymnasium. It carries this idea of something that takes work, self-discipline, sacrifice. And it's commanded, or it's used here as a command with an ongoing intentional effort, ongoing effort that takes intentionality. We don't just stumble and trip one morning and out of the bed into a godly life. It takes work. You're in the gym doing the work for physical well-being, to get stronger physically. Paul would say, yeah, that has some benefit. However, here's the real work. Get busy training yourself for that reverence for God, a lifestyle that shows you're devoted to Him. Discipline yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself in godliness. Discipline yourself to be godly. Now, pause, time out. Just a reminder, we don't get saved because we did a bunch of works to get godly. No, we repent and trust in Christ and then out of that, the fruit of that salvation flows the work of pursuing godliness okay let's get that order right you must be saved first if you are going to pursue a godly life but it is a a training a hard work putting in the time the effort which the sacrifice I'm setting aside other things even good things for the things that are better Putting in more spiritual reps, studying the word, praying, applying it, fellowshipping, evangelizing, doing it all over again, worshiping together, fixing my calendar so that I'm going to prioritize godly things instead of selfish pursuits. My calendar reflects, no, I'm going to prioritize these things. Now, don't forget, within it, we are completely dependent upon the grace of God, the strength of God for this pursuit. Even as Pastor Kempis had reminded us several weeks ago of Colossians 1.29, we labor, we toil, but it is with his, God's power working within us. Or Philippians 2, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who is working within us, all right? So we don't get this mentality, okay, I'm going to train myself from godliness and I'm going to do it all in my own ability, understanding, strength. No, we are still completely dependent upon the Lord in that. Which means he gets the glory in it as we change. But the reality is, the way this word is used here, it is used other places in the Scripture to show that we are always being trained for something. You are always being trained for something to think some way. Hebrews 5.14 would say, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained, the same word, to discern good and evil. Solid food, the strong, healthy, deep doctrine of the word is being put into practice in how we live and that intentionality is training us, disciplining us to now be able to discern right and wrong, right and almost right. Or Hebrews 12, 11 would tell us that God's discipline trains us. It trains us. Do you think of God's discipline that way? This is actually good. It's training me to live a life honoring to him, which produces a peace-filled, righteous life. Well, those are good trainings. However, we're always being trained for something. And in fact, 2 Peter 2, 14 uses the same word to talk about those who are trained for Greed. Trained for greed, sinful selfishness. So in the, in the gym of life, you are either training and strengthening yourself, being equipped for godliness or ungodliness. It's one or the other. Where should we be? Well, we ought to be on the side that is Christ-centered training. That should become our priority. But that takes sacrifice. That takes being Intentional. It takes hard work. Oh, I don't understand the Bible. It's so hard. Yeah, you probably haven't been reading it for a long time. Even you might admit that. It takes time to learn something. It takes time, which is great, which I would encourage you. Get in a small group with those who are older than you've been walking with the Lord for decades. Learn from them. Learn from the training they've put in. Or for those of you who are younger, start doing the training now and set an example for others, maybe even those who are older. Trials, decisions, what we do with our time are like spiritual reps to strengthen us on the track of holiness, to strengthen us even in our ministry to one another. So maybe we should ask, in what ways do we need to up our training or even be doing the right training? whether in repetitions or consistency or in the weighty matters of mature Christian doctrine or in the practical application or in serving, in what ways do we need to step it up? Remember, with the right attitude and devotion, right, coming from that inward reverence for God to begin with, don't be May I not be, it's so easy to be this person, the one that just watches YouTube videos about how to exercise and lose weight but then actually never does it. (laughs) Let's not do that with our Christianity. Oh, it's, yeah, I learned all this stuff about it, but then I never actually got busy applying it. What godly habits, what godly habits do we need to cultivate? How are we going to do that? How can others help us do that? So we must be busy, back to chapter six, pursuing godliness, and look at this. It actually is a means of great gain. Right, the false teachers that said, oh, it's for gain, but their gain was for worldly treasures, self-gratifying treasures, self-exalting fame, self-centered control, but Paul would say, well, that's not the right gain, but there is a great gain, not just a gain, there's a great gain with godliness there's a great blessing of godliness. What is it? Well, there are spiritual and eternal benefits to it, obviously. Well, let me list a few. The first, a peaceful relationship with God. What's the great gain of godliness? Well, first, you've got to be reconciled to God. That's the first greatest gain. You get God, and you just don't get God as some distant deity who's satisfied. You get him as your personal Savior and Lord. You get assurance of salvation. Don't forget the one who saved you is the one who will help give you the strength to persevere, to sustain you to the end, that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Godliness brings the blessing of living obediently in right worship. and Proverbs, would talk much about the joy, the blessing of living the wise, righteous way, godly way. It brings the gain of peaceful unity and harmony with brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because I'm not pursuing my selfish desires. Instead, I want what pleases God. And so in prioritizing that, the people of God become a priority, not myself. It brings the blessing of joy and peace in any circumstance, a happy heart even in the midst of storms, James 1 brings the joy of eternal treasure and faithful witness. The world is watching. The world is watching. We are watching each other in the church. Let's admit it. What kind of witness are we being? But this blessing of godliness, these these wonderful gains, they must be coupled with something. They have to be coupled with something. And, And what does the text actually say here? When accompanied by contentment. Contentment. It's not as the false teachers or the factious people were pursuing. They just were pursuing self-gratification in a fallen world. Instead, it must be accompanied with contentment, and so that's your second blank. The key to godliness. The key to godliness. What is it? Contentment. Contentment. Contentment not just anywhere, though. Contentment in Christ. Think of this, Titus 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Truth, godliness, contentment, all must find its source in Christ. So what is contentment? What is this contentment that Paul is referring to? Well, the, the word for contentment here is a word that means self-sufficiency. It was often used in the, just the culture at the time with an ungodly sense that a person has all they need in and of themselves, sometimes even in relation to being fueled by nature. Your satisfaction comes from nature or from yourself, which, by the way, sounds a lot like our world still. right? We hear that, believe in yourself, trust yourself, follow your heart. Anything you set your mind on, you can do, like with no limitations there. Trust mother nature, don't upset mother nature. Those are all the ungodly ways the cultures use the term contentment. That's self-centeredness instead of God-dependence. But the scriptures use it, Paul uses it differently throughout the scriptures. He put's a different spin on it to show that now our sufficiency comes from God. Our sufficiency comes from Christ, Christ himself. Philippians four is another passage about contentment I'd encourage you to go look at 4:10 through 13, but he says this: Philippians 4, beginning of verse 11, "Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am." I know, how to be, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Boy, isn't that a verse taken out of context very often in our world. That is not saying I can go enter an MMA fighting ring and defeat the other person or I can win the Super Bowl, or I can get a a raise, or a promotion, or whatever, fill in the blank. No, it is in the context of living a content life. The context of no matter what comes my way, abundance, need, prosperity, affliction, whatever it is, I can be satisfied in Christ, content in Christ, because he is the one strengthening me for that. So our sufficiency is not self-sufficiency, it is Christ-sufficiency. Christ-sufficiency. That is contentment. Now let me give you a broader definition of contentment, and this comes from our very own Pastor Kempis. Some of the youth have this memorized. Contentment is that inward spirit of tranquility, or peace, inward spirit of tranquility, rooted in Christ, and fueled by the conviction that Christ is enough regardless of your changing circumstances. Let me read that again. Contentment is that inward spirit of tranquility rooted in Christ and fueled by the conviction that Christ is enough regardless of your changing circumstances. Regardless of them. It has the idea of an internal sufficiency that comes from God's grace enabling us to live for His glory in any circumstance. His grace enables us, strengthens us for any circumstance. One author by the name Jerry Bridges wrote some great stuff. Wrote a lot on this topic actually throughout his books and he says this, the grace of God is the ultimate solution for our discontent the ultimate solution for our discontent. The grace of God is the power of our contentment. It's not us personally being you know, naturally strong and capable, hey, I can take on whatever storm comes my way. No, it's the Lord working in us. Not by just his grace to save us, but his grace to save us, sustain us, and sanctify us. So that's contentment, Christ sufficiency, Christ is enough. But you ask, okay, how does that contentment then connect with godliness? Because Paul is attaching those two things together here. And again, I'm glad you asked. More than any physical stuff or comforts, we ought to desire to love God and live in a way that pleases Him. That ought to be our desire. It's that conviction that Christ is enough. And we don't want to be hypocrites that say, oh, we believe God, we love God, we trust God, but then our lives, we, in them, we look like heathens. We want our external words and actions to match our internal beliefs, right? That's godliness. The internal reverence and devotion is consistent then with the outward devotion and application. And a godly person has that consistency. Are they perfect? No, remember, no one's going to be perfect until we're with the Lord in glory. But there is a consistency, a pursuit. This is what the overwhelming evidence shows about you. A godly person pursues God above all and is satisfied in his relationship with Christ and what Christ provides in everything. And if we're going to be godly consistently, then we need that abiding contentment. Why? Because when we are content, we really believe that God is good and Christ is enough. God is good and Christ is enough. When I'm devoted to Christ because he is good, he is enough, he satisfies. He really does give the abundant life. Maybe not always the things I want, but what I need to live in a way that honors him. He is the good Savior and Lord. I am satisfied in him. Then I'm gonna live a life that shows that. That would be the godly outward flow of application. And the pursuit of anything else, such as love, of money or the must have of money or stuff or popular reputation or control it's all in vain it sucks the life out of the christian it sucks the life out of the church in fact if that is what is evident about you you bear the marks paul would say more with the wicked false teachers and deceivers than you do with the christian but let's be honest there is a battle against discontentment it is a battle for us it's hard We live in a world that wants to just stir up as much discontentment as it can. What is discontentment? Well, it's a lack of satisfaction. A lack of satisfaction in something. One's possessions, one's status, the circumstance of our life. I'm not satisfied in it. I'm not getting what I want. You know what that really is? Covetousness. That's coveting. I mean, let's use biblical terms. It's a form of idolatry. It's coveting, which by the way, in case you forgot, God forbid that. Forbid it not only in the Ten Commandments, but all throughout scriptures. An overly desiring or wrongly desiring something beyond what God has given you that must have mentality. Give me this, then finally I will be content. No, you won't. No, I won't. Thomas Watson wrote this about discontentment. Quote, Discontent is to the soul as a disease is to the body. He called it an irrational and hurtful sin. It's seeking ultimate satisfaction outside of Christ. The lack of a peaceful satisfaction which arises from a heart's wicked desire, the passions of the heart. James chapter 4 desire to trust or depend upon something other than God, a a trying to lay claim to promises God never made or take what God has never given us. Jerry Bridges would call it one of the most satanic of all sins. And it's foolish. We are really foolish when we are being discontent. Why, because we're questioning the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the trustworthiness of God, the faithfulness of God. We're doubting the one who created us, sustained us, saved us. And if he provided all we need for salvation, will he not continue to provide what we need for life and godliness? He will, he said he will. Read 2 Peter 1. So let us not get sucked into the foolish thinking that God has not given me what I need or he won't give me what I need to be holy. But discontentment breeds a lifestyle seeking satisfaction from things that are not eternal, things that are going to pass away. So maybe we should ask, where have we let seeds of covetousness, seeds of discontentment creep into our lives? Whereas worldliness consumed us, blinded us from seeing Jesus as the greatest treasure we can have. Where are we dissatisfied and apathetic toward God and his word and the unity of his church? Look at verses 7 and 8. He kind of expands on this with some reasoning where he says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content." This is the reason, a reminder for contentment. By the way, don't forget God in his goodness. Don't forget God and his provision. Don't forget, by the way, our rightful place before God. We stand dependent upon him and should be satisfied in what he gives. This, this passage by Paul should remind us a little bit of Job 1, 21, where he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job at that point rightfully understood who really is in control, who really is the source of life, who is the source of blessing. He realized it's not himself. It's God. Do we have that mindset? The mindset that says, I'm not going to lustfully chase after the treasures and renown of the world like I must have it. Or do we treat the world's goods and thinking as our precious? I'm not going to do the voice. It's okay. (laughs) All right. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Are we... Enamored by the fleeting, empty, temporary gains here? Or are we pursuing, intentionally pursuing heavenly things? Let us look to God. Let us trust Him. He knows what is best for us to make us more like Christ. So let us us set aside those other pursuits with the attitude that I have to have them. It's not saying everything is necessarily bad. It's the attitude behind it, the idolatry of the heart, that I have to have it. Remember, the precious? And what happens is we begin to become anxious and worrying about this or that, how this person's gonna respond. Am I gonna get, I want this thing, am I gonna get it? How's this gonna work out? And we're worried and it just sucks the life out of us and we forget what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Don't worry about those things. The things you need God will provide those things. You seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Trust him. Fix your satisfaction on him, your joy upon him, your hope in him, because he is the one that will not change. He is the one that will not fade. Find your peace in Jesus, the eternal peace giver, the God of peace. Now, it would be wrong to say that we never face hardships. That would be a foolish thing to say. Like Job, in some ways, we definitely do face hardships. We suffer. We are afflicted at times. But even that, too, is under the perfect hand and care of our God. And let me tell you, if it wasn't, that would be a terrifying universe to live in. I wouldn't want to live there. But for many of us when afflictions hit that's where the battle gets really hard. I would encourage you this week, you can write this down spend some time reading the story of Joseph. Read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Read Romans 8.28 again. James 1, 2 through 4 and see how God explains, describes, paints this issue of what is our attitude in affliction in these times we have to cling to what is true what is true our flesh the world wants to distract us with the what-ifs but we have to cling to the what is true what we know about God his goodness his sovereignty his ways by the way you find it here and your life is a walking testimony and evidence to how that has been at work within you. But we go to what we know is true, which is the word of God. And admittedly, often, when we're not in the affliction times, we will say, I have said, man, I, we tend to grow closer to God in trials. We do. That doesn't mean, though, that we approach trials as being giddy. Ooh, I can't wait to suffer. Yay! No, it's not that. There is a sobriety to it. We know that there's a greater plan and good for, uh, goodness that comes out of the, the hardship, the main, one of the main things being our sanctification, being made more like Christ. If you haven't read The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, I would encourage you to. He talks about the, the blessing for us in affliction, whereas prosperity might actually be a curse for us. And so we have to get our minds what we know is true and what is right and best in this life where the ultimate goal is the glory of God and our sanctification to be like Christ, to be satisfied in Christ, to be dependent upon Christ. And we know, we admit, we know trials drive us towards that. But they're not easy. I'm right there with you. I don't necessarily always enjoy them. But they do propel us drive us toward God. And what do we do? We have to cling to what we know is true. Not what we feel, what we know is true. I would also encourage you, really encourage you to study the doctrine of the providence of God. If you've not spent time on that, study it. Soak it up. Look at the scriptures where it shows God's purposeful sovereignty, in the words of John Piper, purposeful sovereignty, God's working plan in all things in the plan of redemption, in your life, all of history, but then even specifically in how your life works out. Get that in your mind. Saturate your mind with the word of God that shows his providence in all things. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. Contentment's important, godliness is important, Woohoo!" but just tell me how to actually do this thing. Which is great that we only have like five minutes left. How do I become more godly? How do I be more content? Well, let me give you a string of application, all right? And some will break off into a little bit more. First, pray. It's a good place to begin. Pray. Pray for a right understanding. Pray for a right attitude. Pray for right affections before God. Pray to walk in obedience. Pray, pray, pray. Second, obtain a right view of God from his word and fix your mind there. Fix your mind on that truth. Get in the word by yourself and with others. Get in the word. Seek to understand the attributes of God, his sovereignty, his providence. Understand the gospel. Hey, reminder, we are sinners who deserve nothing good from God, so anything outside of hell right now is a blessing we don't deserve. God saves us from his wrath. That's what we deserve. That's the greatest treasure we have. Anything good on top of that, he adds, is icing on the cake. Get a right understanding of the hope you have, the inheritance you have in Christ. Get a right understanding, a biblical understanding of suffering. See that God is the object of our contentment, he is our satisfaction, our joy. That's where it's fixed. We don't need to find it anywhere else. And you know what that is? Boy, that is oh so freeing, freeing. That now, if I'm not pursuing satisfaction in the things of this world, reputation, control, whatever it is, if I'm not trying to find satisfaction there, but I'm pursuing finding satisfaction in Christ, I have that inward reverence for him that flows in an outward lifestyle of devotion to him. I am satisfied there. Anything else, I don't have to operate from the idolatrous. I need them. I can enjoy them now. I can enjoy life to God's glory. I can take a nap to the glory of God. I can enjoy that food. And then when those things, those treasures, whatever it might be, those positions in life are taken away, then our peace and joy does not fade away with it. Why? Because our peace and joy was never based on it in the first place. It was based upon God. Over here, anything else that comes and goes, God gives, takes away, doesn't change this fact of where I stand with the Lord. And we can truly sing the third verse of Be Thou My Vision Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. So get that right view of God from his word. Third, evaluate. Evaluate, evaluate, evaluate your priorities, expectations, and desires. Ooh, are they Christ-centered? Love of God and love of others, or are they self-centered? Fourth, humble yourself before God. That's necessary. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. Fourth, fifth, something. Repent of worldliness, uh, worldliness, covetousness, and discontentment. Repent of it. Turn from it. Confess it. Which then leads us to the next one: trust God. Trust God. Which are like, yeah, we trust God, and then life gets hard. And boy, are we living a life that shows we trust Him? Trust Him. Worship God personally and corporately. Go to Psalm 73 this week and see Asaph's change of perspective when he enters into worship after having looked at the world and almost envied it. He draws to worship in the sanctuary and his his perspective is reset of what's true. Worship corporately, gather together corporately. By the way, corporate worship, this is crucial for our growth and contentment our growth in godliness. One writer said, quote, God has designed his church to contain pastors, elders, and other mature brothers and sisters who can teach you, encourage you, model for you, pray for you, and challenge you to grow in this fruit of Christian contentment. So consider strategic ways to involve these other people on your journey so that they can help you. We all need help. Next, immerse yourself in the means of grace for sanctification, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, sitting under the preaching of the word. Immerse yourself in them. That's the, remember the training for godliness. Next, train the tongue and the mind towards thanksgiving. I believe it was Thomas Watson on his work on contentment that really drives after this. Sure, we need to train our mind, trained our tongue towards thanksgiving. Let's be honest; I'm right there with you. It is so easy to grumble and complain, man. It really is. We need to replace our grumbling, our complaining with thanksgiving to God. Are you sure I have to? Yes, because Paul would com- give the command in Philippians two fourteen: Do all things without grumbling or disputing, grumbling or arguing, complaining. All things. Because if there is grumbling, complaining, arguing, you know what's a sign of? A discontent heart. And it's not just with the things out in the world. It's in the church too. We get discontent with how the church is, changes that come, baggage, conflicts, and there is grumbling and murmuring Beloved, that is wrong. We have to stop that. And if you don't like me telling you you have to stop it, God tells us right here, Philippians 2, four. we have to stop that. This ought to be a place of unity and excitement for the ministry of the word, excitement for worship. And if I disagree, okay. If it's, if it's over, you know, we could both biblical positions, just preference, okay. But I still love you and we're gonna operate in excitement and zeal for the ministry. If there is grumbling and complaining and arguing, it is sucking the life out of you and others. Let us not be discontent in the church. Instead, do what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, which begins with our minds being renewed with the truth. Last, we ought to serve others. Serve the church consistently and faithfully with a good attitude, a thankful attitude. All this flows from a heart that loves God and desires to please Him in everything. Because why? Because He is worthy of it. He is the Holy One who has shown amazing grace towards us. So satisfaction in Christ, that's what brings true godliness if you're not in Christ today the command for you from God is to repent and believe in him turn to Christ if you are a believer then ask yourself is Christ enough for me am I living in a way that shows Jesus is my greatest satisfaction and and I am I am pursuing that I am fully devoted I am excited for that Christ has given us all we need for life and godliness so we must humbly depend upon him for everything, at every point. We must not love the world, the things of the world. We must not be lazy in wanting to be more like Christ. We must not be apathetic towards spiritual things but we must intentionally press on to know Christ to be more like Christ while keeping our affections and faith fixed upon Christ so that no matter what wind of the world hits us, we can truly say Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that reminds us of the, the things that are be priorities in our life. And it begins with salvation in Christ being reconciled to him, repentance and faith, but then it overflows into a pursuit of godliness. We all admit we could do better, but we are so thankful you're a patient God, gracious God, who even when we fail in that pursuit does not leave us nor forsake us, but loves us. In fact, so much so that you have given your spirit to seal us for the day of redemption, to be a guarantee, but also to work within us. We are so thankful for that. This doesn't happen in our own strength, It happens by your grace working within us. Father, may we get busy as people who pursue knowing Christ and then living in a way that honors Christ. It may be for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.